good friend of mine, Ryan Scheel. And so I was able to uh, meet Ryan a few years ago. He's a very, very dear brother. Uh, love him and his family so, so much. And uh, so excited that he is able to be here with us today. And uh, <clears throat> my mother was afraid that she wouldn't be able to understand him because of his accent. But so far, she's been able to understand everything that he has said. So I think we will all be good to go. Uh, but very thankful that Ryan's here. Um, just can't say enough of how thankful I am of him. He's just, uh, he's been a huge blessing to us in our life and our ministry. And uh, just want to open up in a word of prayer and then give him the, give him the time. So let's pray. Father God, we do come before you and we thank you. We thank you so much for who you are. And as we come together each and every Sunday, we come to worship you. We come to sing praises to your name. We come to pray unto you. And uh, Lord, we come to hear your word uh, taught and preached so that we might know you more, so that we might worship you uh, rightly and uh, know how to live our lives in such a way that honors and glorifies you. God, I pray that you would be with us today in this Sunday school hour as Ryan comes and shares the ministry uh, that they have been doing and that he wishes and hopes and prays to continue to do. Um, Father, I pray it would be an encouragement to the hearts of the saints here at Westwood Heights, that it would encourage them, that it would uh, strengthen their desire for world, world missions, uh, wanting to see the gospel go out into uh, places in which it has not yet reached. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would uh, give us all a greater zeal and love for the truth, a love for the gospel, and a love to share it with others. Lord, I pray you'd be with Ryan as he speaks. Lord, just giving him clarity and um, uh, just blessing the, the, the things that he says, that it would be uh, things that would edify our hearts. Um, and so we pray this, that it would be a time that honors and glorifies you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, Ryan, so do we. Good morning to you all. It is a, a wonderful joy to be here this morning. Uh, thank you to Pastor Ken Largent for uh, organizing for me to uh, take the Sunday school at a last minute. It's my first time to travel across the Atlantic, though my wife is from the U.S., and so it's been a very strange experience for an African boy like me. Um, thank you for having us this morning. Friends, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to, to the book of Romans, Romans and chapter 9, and we will be in 9 and 10 a bit uh, in some moments to come. What I will try and do this morning is spend the first 30 minutes or so speaking about our ministry to the Somali people. And after that, we will transition and look at God's Word for a few moments and see if we can mine out some gold from a particular portion of His Word. So I will spend the first 30 minutes or so, God willing, speaking about the Somalis and speaking very briefly about um, ourselves. My wife is Samantha. Uh, she's from Arkansas. And she... Just to give you a bit of a background about my wife, we met in Kenya, of all places to meet. She was a missionary that was working there, uh, was sent out uh, with uh, the mission organization, Africa Inland Mission, and we met in Kenya. And um, Samantha comes from a little town in Arkansas, and she went to the University of Missouri, and it was at the University of Missouri that 
Though all her life she had thought she was a Christian, she grew up in the church, she grew up under sound teaching in a Baptist church, and it was in Missouri that she met some genuine Christians who were on fire for God and started to confront her about her life and her lifestyle. And this completely undid her. And it was upon reading the book of Matthew for the first time that she was convinced that Jesus is who he said he is and his call to follow him was... Uh, demanded a response from her. And so Samantha, not too long after that, when she finished university, set out to, to, um, to Kenya to labor amongst uh, some Muslim peoples in a rural area of Kenya. Now, she would have loved to be here with you this morning, but we just had our first son, Titus, about four months ago. And uh, next week, we will be on the road for an entire month and so my wife thought she would sit this one out uh, and so that she could be on the road with us for, uh, for the next month. So she sends her greetings. And uh, Titus speaks in Gugu Gaga language, but he also sends his, his greetings to you all. I, I come from a farming family in Zambia. Uh, we have been there for a few generations now. My mother comes from South Africa, and so I'd consider myself partly South African and partly Zambian. I still really don't know where I'm from, to be honest with you. But um, I came to the Lord by fire. Uh, some people come to the Lord through hymns. Some people come to the Lord uh, in a gentle and calm way. I came to the Lord, which I would describe as by fire. I lived a very godless life. Uh, I come from a family of agnostics, I would say atheists, uh, that do not believe in God, or at least have suppressed what they inherently know to be true. And so I grew up just living as I wanted, you know, without God and doing what was right in my own eyes. And I left a trail of destruction behind me, and I was uh, living a completely godless life. Uh, and it was after many years of really bad relationships with women and a lot of drugs and alcohol that I ended up washed up on the beach, uh, as it were, and in great contemplation of suicide. And the Lord had his hand heavy on me. Uh, the only reason I could not take my life was because I knew how bad I was. And I started to envy in those days people in the church and people who I thought were good people. And I realized that there was no hope for me because I, I was not fit to live, but I was not fit to die and meet my maker either. And God kept me there for about six months. And I was in a uh, psychiatric hospital, if you were, to uh, stable me, a rehabilitation center, you would probably call it, to stable me and stable my mind. And it was there that I heard for the first time that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And that Jesus had not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And sinner I was, and Savior he was. And there the light of the gospel first shined into my heart. And I started to follow the Savior. About the, a bit about the Somalis, and then I'll spend a few moments on reflecting on our previous labors, and then talking about what we intend to do, God willing. When I, soon after I was converted, I had such a hunger for God's word. Uh, I, I really wanted to feast and eat his word as much as I could. And I started to read, you know, uh, the, the Great Commission, you know, where Jesus would say is that, that we should take this gospel to the nations and that we should preach the gospel to every creature. 
We should make disciples of all nations. And then I started to catch something of the spirit of the Apostle Paul, where he would say things like it was his ambition to preach Christ where he had not been named. So I was reading God's Word, and I was experiencing in Cape Town, I was studying at the time in Cape Town, and I was experiencing in Cape Town, as I went to my old friends and I told them about Christ, I was experiencing what the Apostle Paul was saying, that actually there, had, there was places where the gospel had gone and been established, and there was places where it had not. And uh, God started to lay on my heart the nations, the unreached nations, and I picked up a book and I'd read through you know, different nations, Mauritania and Morocco and uh, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Afghanistan and these places where the gospel had never taken root yet. And um, the Lord started to just give me a burden for the Somali people. I felt like I was a bit like Jonah when I first uh, sensed that the Lord may be leading me towards the Somali people. You know, these were pirates and terrorists. And uh, for me to, to, to even think about trying to take the gospel there was a daunting thing. And I, I felt that I was trying to push away, as it were, what uh, it seemed that God was, was leading me to do at the time. So eventually, the Lord conquered my unbelief, and, and I started to uh, really contemplate the Somali people and contemplate what it would be to try and devote the rest of my life to taking the gospel to them, uh, this good news about the Savior that I'd come to know, to take it to them. We, when I'd finished at seminary in, in South Africa, we, um, before I'd even met my wife yet, I started with the blessing of my church at that time, started to learn the Somali language. Uh, for the first two years or so, I moved back to Zambia, which is where my family was from, and I lived in a different town. And I started to learn the language there. And it was a shocking experience because I went to these people. There was a small group of them. There was about three to 5,000 Somalis living all tightly together. And I went to them expressing my desire to learn their language. But when they investigated me and found out my intentions for learning the language, no one would want to teach me the language. Um, money wouldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't pay them to teach me the language. And eventually, the Lord in His kindness uh, brought across my path three drunkards, three men who were outcasts of the community that were Somali, but had basically abandoned Islam. And they were the ones who taught me the language. And I'm so grateful to God for those three men that gave me the first foot in the door of trying to learn this language and understand this uh, strange people. Samantha and I met in Kenya, as I mentioned earlier. She was living in Mombasa at the time, where Josh and, and Bethany currently are placed. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, a wonderful, um, God, God's just wonderful providence, how he brought us together. And I won't spend too much time on that. But after we met and we spent time courting and getting to know one another and seeing if we would be, a good fit for one another, uh, God was really, really knitted us together and uh, we were married in due time. And once we were married, we, uh, after spending a month on honeymoon, we broke all of the missionary laws where you're not supposed to go onto the field for the first year and we, uh, we moved to eastern Ethiopia 
after a month of being married to continue learning the language amongst the Somali people. And Samantha had worked a bit with Somalis in Mombasa because there's a lot of Somalis in Mombasa, but I'll never forget her first experience or her first encounter in the Somali state of Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia is a country that is, uh, which we will talk about in a bit, it is a country that is, is divided according to tribes. So if you can imagine, for example, the state of Omaha was entirely white people, and then the state of Kansas was entirely Hispanic people, and then the state of uh, maybe, Nebra uh, sorry, the state of Nebraska, or another state was entirely African-American people. That gives you a picture of what it's like in Ethiopia. When you cross into the, the, the border, into the Somali state, it is entirely Somali, Somali police, Somali uh, authorities, etc. And so we, we were taking a long bus ride, and I had gone ahead of my wife to find a home in the eastern city of Ethiopia by the name of Jigjiga, which was an entirely Somali city. And I'd gone ahead to prepare a home for my new bride and bring her to this what I tried to convince her was a wonderful city to live in. <laughs> and we arrived at the, at the border for the state, and there's a bomb search there where they search for weapons and bombs and stuff. And you get off the bus, and they, the men are searched on the one side, and the women are searched on the other side. And this man gets talking with Samantha, and she cannot speak the language. And for some unknown reason to me, he just spits in her face. Boom. And she, I saw her after the search, we joined up again, and she was just weeping, and I said, what had happened? And she said, no, he spat in my face. And um, I, later on, I just said to Samantha, welcome to the Somalis, you know. Um, we, Samantha and I first lived in, a, in the eastern city, as I said, of Ethiopia by the name of Jigjiga. And there I continued my language learning. I had, by this stage, about two years of language uh, under my belt, and uh, I felt it would take a lifetime to learn this language. And Samantha was starting to learn the language uh, now. And we lived in Jigjiga for a period of time. And in, when we first got there, I was very quiet about my intentions of being there because I'd learned Somalis by this stage. I'd realized the news travels very quickly, and there was only a couple of foreign families living in that city. And if news were to spread that I was there to spread the gospel, it would close the doors on my ability to learn the language. So without being deceitful or anything, I really tried to go under the radar and find a teacher and just learn the language. And sooner or later, when I felt that I have enough of the, when we had enough of the language to uh, start actually doing some evangelistic work, I would take every opportunity, well, not every opportunity, I missed many, but I would try to take as many opportunities as possible to speak to people about their souls and speak to them of their need for a savior, that their good works were insufficient to save them. And you'll see why this is uh, such a strong message when I talk about the Somalis in a moment. And we started to try and evangelize the Somalis. Well, news traveled very quickly um, among, among the Somali people and uh, sooner or later, we found that there was just a rising opposition to us in that particular city. News had uh, caught wind at the mosques, and warning messages were being announced from the mosques and everything of who we are and what we were doing. And it just became very, very hard for us to actually communicate with anyone. Uh, we were just under surveillance, 
and our language teacher stopped coming because he was fearful for his own security. And so we, we felt it best to move. So we moved uh, to a city westward, which was not, which had a lot of Somalis, but was not a Somali city. And it was there that the Otieno family, uh, who we will talk a lot about, uh, and jo Josh may have already mentioned them to you, the Otieno family joined us in Ethiopia. They were a Kenyan family that were also learning the language with the long-term intention and desire to try and plant a church amongst the Somalis. And we were so happy to have the Otieno family join us, and it was there that we continued learning the language together. Now, one thing that I must tell you is my wife and I, at this stage, as we had packed our bags and left that city, we were full of joy at the prospect of joining the Otieno families and having co-workers to work with, but we were feeling incredibly heavy and depressed. Uh, we felt that the light of the gospel was being pushed out of the city, and we felt incredibly defeated ourselves. And one story which just marvels me to this day is that amongst all of what was going on in that particular city, the very day we were leaving, there was a young man that was sent to my home, and he knocked on the door, and it was a steel gate, and he knocks on the door, and I open the gate, and I know that the mosques have been talking about what we're doing, and I know uh, that we're under surveillance, so my antennas are up. And this man, full of joy, steps into my home, and says, I would like to know about the gospel, and I hear that you can teach me about the gospel, and I also hear that you can give me a Bible. Now, most missionaries would jump up and down at that, but I was very skeptical because I thought he was sent directly from the mosques as a spy to get information. And so I was so reluctant with this guy, and I, very, I pretty much blew him off and very reluctantly gave him a Bible and I remember saying to my wife as we packed the truck and we left that city, I remember saying to her, man, I just wasted a Somali Bible. I only have four of these and they're very precious. And um, you know what happened? This young man, Khadr, he took the Bible. It was actually only the New Testament. And he started reading the New Testament. And the words of Scripture were jumping out of the pages and getting into his heart. And life was at work in this man. And the things concerning Christ were springing forth in his heart. And he was born into the kingdom of God. And, you know, I know many missionaries have, have never seen... And the thing is, it was such a strange thing because it had nothing to do with me. In fact, I was hindering what God was trying to do because I almost sent this guy away without a Bible. And it just reminded me again of the power of God's word. Um, and though there be darkness at work against us, forces work against us, that God's word will not return to him void. And that was, the Lord really put a skip in my step, and I felt I could go on for a few more years. If every few years he would give me one man. And that was a very sweet thing. So, the Otienos joined us in Deridawa, and we were so grateful to labor with them. They had a huge family, uh, four kids, and what happened is, I don't know if you know, there's a civil war, or there was a civil war in Ethiopia, right, right about the time of the Ukraine-Russia Ukraine war that was making all the headlines. There was another war in the world, in Ethiopia, and it was a tribal civil war within the country that was taking place. And the trustees committed in that war 
of the same scale as Russia-Ukraine, they estimate between three and 500,000 lives were massacred during that war, but obviously doesn't make the news because Ethiopia is unimportant. And we, we, uh, we found it uh, increasingly difficult uh, to try and get work permits, particularly for our colleagues, the Kenyan family. And so with, with heaviness of heart, they had to return back to Kenya as they were unable to remain in Ethiopia. So when we went back to our church at the beginning of this year, we went back to the drawing boards, and uh, Josh had been talking a lot about the Somalis, and we had kept up a great friendship during that time. And though we were at distance from one another, he was in Kenya and I was in Ethiopia, we had started to talk about the Somalis, and we had started to talk about forming a church planting team and what that would look like and where we would settle. Uh, and so we went back to the drawing boards. And can I ask if uh, the brothers at the back could just put up that, that map very, very quickly for us? So I think that you, you all know what Africa looks like. This is the eastern horn of Africa. And there you have it in the, in the orange, Somalia, which uh, is a country that practices Sharia law. They do not allow missionaries to go into the country and at best, you're able to enter the country as a doctor or a uh, relief worker of some nature. But as soon as you start getting busy with the ministry of the word, you're for certain kicked out if you're lucky. And if not, then you're killed. So it is very, very hard for missionaries to try and get into Somalia because the government will not allow missionaries to get in. But God in providence, because of the war and drought and famine, has pushed Somalis into Ethiopia and Kenya, and that's why you hear me speaking so much about them. In this eastern tip of Ethiopia, there is about 7 million Somalis just there, and in eastern Kenya as well, and then in Nairobi, they estimate between about 3 and 4 million. When you add up Kenya and Ethiopia, you basically have half of the world's Somalis, give or take. And so we went back to the, to the drawing board to think about where would be a conducive... Uh, place to settle in order to try and put down deep roots and uh, try and evangelize these people and hopefully see a church birthed one day. Thanks, brothers. The next one. So with, the elders from, with one of the elders from my sending church, we went to spend time with, that's, that is Joseph, the Kenyan brother, and that is uh, familiar Josh. And we went to spend time with these two men in Kenya and pray together and seek the Lord together and do some research about where would be the best place to settle long term. Josh, I hope you've told your church about all of this and it's not new information to them. Uh, okay, well that's fine. And uh, so why did we settle on the city of Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya? We were, we were just shocked when we went to Kenya to find in the capital, the Somalis are trying to take, or they are taking over huge sections of Nairobi. I would say that Nairobi is the New York of East Africa. It's the center of trade. It is the, as it were, stock exchange of East Africa. All trade happens through Nairobi. And if you know anything about Somalis, you know that they are traders at heart. And so they are just there is a huge influx of Somalis into Nairobi. Not to add that the Minister of Defense in Kenya himself is a Somali. And so you can imagine as what has been the problem with the Mexico border, 
you can imagine the Minister of Defense of the neighboring country becoming, getting into power without any wall or border and basically saying, hey boys, come. And sure as anything, the Somalis have come in scores and drones and they're trying to take over basically the CBD, the Central Business District of Nairobi. We, the official numbers say about half a million Somalis in Nairobi. We estimate the number to be closer to a million because a lot of them are there illegally and they don't do the census and they hide from uh, officials when they come around. And so we estimate the number to be anywhere between half a million and a million Somalis in Nairobi. We were just shocked at how many are there. And, and I, I, I think it's safe to say that this is the biggest population of Somalis that are gathered outside of Somalia itself. We also found that because Kenya is a neutral, more liberal government, that the governing authorities would not be working against us to do what we would do. Sure, we would have pressure from the community, as we'll go into a bit, but we found that we could meet these people on neutral soil. And for that reason, uh, found that there was a great open door to try and evangelize them with some degree of freedom. So as we, as we look down uh, the corridors, as it were, of what the future would look like, uh, let me just touch on a, few, a very few points, and then we will talk briefly about the Somalis and then transition to our text for this morning. So we've been learning the language. We've placed a great emphasis on language fluency, and I think you, you, you guys will all know that Josh as well has been really steering the ship from uh, the work that he was doing with other churches in Kenya to, to zero in on learning the Somali language. We see great necessity to learn this language and become fluent in it. And so both Joseph and Josh are also uh, putting great amounts of efforts into the language as, as I have been. With the Somalis, there is no foundation that's been laid amongst them. Yes, there's other people trying to reach them. We're not the only ones. But there is no visible church at best, there are very small fellowships. In fact, there was a fellowship in Nairobi, and some spies had infiltrated the fellowship. And as soon as they were uh, finished with the meeting, as they came out, the sheikhs and the imams and the religious leaders of the community were waiting there and beat these people severely and completely scattered the fellowship. Uh, I mean, we can count Somali Christians basically on these hands. They are very, very few at best and very scattered and very fearful. And there's real no visible Somali church that exists. There are some underground fellowships in different areas that exist. Uh, but we spoke with, when we're doing our trip now in March, we spoke with some of the guys in Nairobi that are very connected with some of the missionaries that are working amongst the Somalis. And they said, since that fellowship that day was scattered, they know of no regular gathering of Somali Christians that are meeting now, there are a few handful of them that have been plugged into Kenyan churches, and we're grateful for that. But I think this just paints a picture of the dire need of a people that I would say is pretty much 99.9% Somali. Somalis pride themselves in being the only nation that is completely Muslim. And so they try to exterminate Christians when they convert to Christianity. There is a great desire to exterminate them. So why, why the Somalis? My father often says to me this exact question. He says, Ryan, of all the people in the world, why the Somalis? 
And his exact words are these, those people are unsavable. Unsavable. Pirates and terrorists. You are unable to convert them. Those are the words of my father, which uh, ring in my mind very often. Friends, if you look with me in Romans, we'll turn to Romans chapter 10. I want to paint you a picture of the nation of Somalia for a few seconds. Look what the Apostle Paul says when speaking about the Jews. He says this, My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. When we talk about the Somalis, we are talking about a devout people. I want you to imagine a Pharisee or a scribe and dress a whole nation in their clothes, and that is the Somalis. This is a people that is trying to get to heaven. You have never met a more sincere, more devout, more earnest people that is trying to establish righteousness. This is a people that prays five times a day, a people that is earnestly trying to enter on the narrow gate, as it were. A people that is earnestly trying to climb the ladder to heaven. This is a people that is serious about righteousness. And as the Apostle Paul would say about the Jews, and say that they have a zeal for God, I have to give that to the Somalis. That this is a people that has a zeal for God that in the name of God would even kill people, as the Lord Jesus would prophesy would happen in the last days. And so I often say that the loss of a Somali is a double loss. I want you to think of your atheist friend or your agnostic. He gives no concern to God. He's not trying to enter heaven. He is just gorging on this world and filling his stomach. And he cares not for God in contrast to a Somali who cares very much about God and is trying to enter heaven. The unseen world is more real to them than the seen world. This is a spiritual people. This is a people full of religion. This is a people trying to enter heaven. And that's why, can you imagine devoting your entire life, put yourself in their shoes for a minute, devoting your entire life to trying to get to heaven? And missing the very thing that you aimed for because you were ignorant of the righteousness of God, you tried to establish your own. And that is the Somalis to a T. Somalis are often, the Somali people, it's often des- they're often described as the graveyard of missions. There's a high churn rate for people trying to reach the Somalis. There's people coming from the West all the time. And they last six months, maybe a year at best, and they're flushed out the other side. They're considered the graveyard of missions. As I said, we're not the first people to try. There's people who have tried before us. So why is it so hard to reach the Somalis? And we will answer this question, and then we'll turn to our text for this morning. Why is it so hard to reach the Somalis? Firstly, their religion. 
I think if any of you know anything about Islam, it is a religion of deception. Light is darkness. Darkness is light. Truth is error, and error is truth. It is a complete deception of truth and that which is right. A Somali would, when I greet a Somali in his language, particularly the men whom I work with, it is this, if you greet any nation, if you greet an Hispanic in their language, their face lights up, they're so happy to talk to you because you've learned their language. Wow, you must really care for us. You greet a Somali in his language and he looks at you with great suspicion and he says, why have you learned my language? What are you doing here? He is trying to put me in one of two boxes. He's trying to figure out if I'm a missionary or a spy that's working for the FBI. Because to have learned his language, I must be one of the two. And none of those boxes are good in their eyes. And so to them, I'm an agent of Satan. And, and that, that just, just my appearance, just my color, just the fact that I've learned their language, often that in itself, and them putting me into one of those boxes, that in itself is a barrier to them actually listening to what I have to say. Secondly, the message we bring. Friends, we bring a good message to the Somalis. We actually have a good message for the world. And if the world would listen, they would hear that our message is actually good. But it's a great stumbling stone to a proud man to hear that there's a righteousness, another kind of righteousness that's received by faith, that you can't have it by doing something, that it's a gift righteousness, it's an alien righteousness, it's a righteousness which must be credited to you because you have none of your own. Well, that is a hard, man for a, hard message for a man that thinks he's righteous before God. So the message we bring is a hard message. I remember preaching the one time we had traveled north of Jigjiga to a little town by the name of Chinaxan. And there we went into a little restaurant, and uh, myself and another Ethiopian man, and we said to these Somalis that were sitting there, guys, we have a message for you. Would you listen to us? And I went on for about a minute or two to tell them how their righteousness was not sufficient and that they needed a savior. And the one guy, I'll never forget it, he was a young man. It was mosque day. It was Friday morning just before they were getting ready to go to the mosque. And he got up to me, he got up and he walked right up to me and he started to do this, Allah Akbar, and he started, and I thought, that is not a greeting. <laughs> and um, yeah, the message we bring is, is very hard for them to hear. Lastly, well, second last, the culture. This is a dependent culture. You know, the West is very independent. You have your stuff, I have my stuff. You don't ask me, I don't ask you. But the Somali culture is an interdependent culture, a culture that leans heavily on one another. For a man to be rich amongst the Somalis whilst his clan is poor is a great shame. This is a people that grow together and build together. In the West, you have an insurance policy. Well, the insurance policy amongst Somalis is you pay a tax every month to your clan. You don't pay it to some business, you pay it to your clan. And if ever you're in trouble, if ever you kill someone, or if ever you need a bailout in life, the clan whom you have been paying insurance to will come to your support. This is a culture that is heavily dependent on one another. They do not intermix, they do not intermarry. Go to Minneapolis, there's about 250,000. I'm not exactly sure on the numbers, but I think it's somewhere around there in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. And you go there, and what you will find is suddenly you, you enter into this different world because there were no Somalis and suddenly they're everywhere. 
And there's literally a border, an invisible border. You do not cross in there, they do not cross unto you. They do not intermix, they do not intermarry. It's very rare to hear of intermarriages and intermixing. Even amongst other Muslim peoples, they do not mix and marry. It reminds me a bit of the, the, the zealots in the first century where uh, this, this people basically pulled themselves away from the world, a call to separation, a call to be separate, in order to devote themselves to religion and to trying to get to heaven. That's exactly what the Somalis are like. And then lastly, their leaders. What can be true of the Lord Jesus saying to the, the Jewish leaders, that you yourselves do not enter, and you stop others from entering. You keep others from entering. The religious leaders are there, and they're guarding. They're guarding for the wolves. You know, They're guarding their flock. And when guys like me come in, they're warning and exposing us and trying to discredit us so that people would not listen to us and, uh, and they would not enter and they would keep others from entering. So friends, from my dad's point of view, we are set up for failure. Just think about this and let this, the weight of all of this soak in for a second. We are set up for utter failure. I'm the wrong color because Somalis are racist and just my color already puts me on the back foot. I'm not a Somali, number two. I'm not, I'm not as spiritual as some other missionaries that have gone out there. My prayer life is not so great quite often. And lastly, they are sure that they are right. They are the holy ones. They are the people of God. They are the ones who worship the true God. We are the infidels. We are the ones who worship three gods. And so we are set up for failure. But God. But God. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus said, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And what we have going for us are those two things. We have the Scriptures and we have the power of God. There's more power in one verse of Scripture than an entire army. And God's Word will accomplish its purposes. Remember that wonderful Psalm, Psalm 126? that go, those who go forth in tears, carrying the seed, bearing seed to sow, will come back, reaping with shouts of joy, carrying the harvest with them. We have great promises from God's word that he will finish the job. And that's really what drives us. You know, the Apostle Paul, he says in, um, in Romans chapter 9, I have great sorrow... I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The ESV would say that he, I have unceasing anguish. And that's really what's driven me with the Somalis. I have anguish for them to be saved. I don't know many things. I can't spell out you know, the depths of engineering to you. I can't tell you too much about technology. But I know that there is a Savior. And that man is not justified by what he does, 
but by believing on Jesus Christ. And that I am 100% sure of. And that's what drives me, that I have anguish for these Somalis to know Christ. Friends, do you have anguish? Do you have anguish for a lost one? Have you ever wept for one that is perishing? Or are you just happy that you're going to heaven yourself? Couldn't care about others. Let's turn now to God's word for, we only have 15 minutes. Let's turn to God's word very quickly. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 14, verse 16 to 24. We're going to look at this parable very quickly. And then we will close with a word of prayer. Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. You know the parable so well. The parable of the great wedding banquet, or the great banquet, or the great feast, or the great supper. Or in simple English, the parable of the great party. The parable of the great party. There is a master, there is a servant, and there is a message. And the servant gets this message hot from the coals of the master, and he is to take this message, which is a message of invitation. And he is going to go to all different kinds of people, and he is going to invite people to come to the master's supper, or the Lord's supper, the King's Supper. And what we're going to find this morning is exactly what happened in the world as the message of the gospel goes out to the world. Look with me in verse 16. Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. There was a great supper, a great feast, a banquet, a huge, huge feast that people were to be invited to. And look at the word there in the King James. It says, bade many. Or other translations will say, invited many. This was a great invitation that was to go out to the masses, that many were invited to, what were they invited to? A supper. And who was having the supper? The king, the master, was having a supper. And everyone was invited. And look with us. In verse 17 here, and he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that they were bidden, Come, for everything is now, now ready. Firstly, notice that word servant. He was a servant. That was his position. That is your position, and that is my position. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has bought you with his grace, you are at best a servant. I am a servant, and that is his position. And what is his business? His business is this, to tell people, come, everything is ready. Everything has been prepared for. There is no price to come. The price of redemption has been paid. You are welcome, and I bid you, come. You are invited. There is no going to be no asking for money at the door. You are invited, and it's free. All you have to do is say yes. And that is the message that he takes out. Come, I love that word, come. He does not say go. He says come. Isn't that a wonderful word? Come. Come. Heavy sinner, come. That is a great and wonderful word. There is a great feast. There is a great invitation. And you know, you would think 
that such a great feast from such a great man, such a great king, with such a great invitation, would be met with such a wonderful reception. And so we have this great feast, we have this great invitation, and what is it met with? Verse 18, a great rejection. A great rejection. They all with one another began to consent and make excuses. The first said unto himself, unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. Look at verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. The third one said, and another, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. You know, in those days, it was unthinkable that you would ever turn down an invitation. People had more time in those days, and to be invited to not just a feast, but to a feast from the king, it was unthinkable that anyone would turn down such an invitation. And do you notice who the, who the invitation first goes to? It's the people of nobility, right? It's the people of class. It's the people with wealth, the people who have lands and oxen and married. They're obviously handsome-looking guys. Because, and, and, and these are the folk that are of status in society. And this is who the invitation first comes to. Sir, I have a message for you. The king is having a feast and you're invited. He has paid for the price with his own blood for you to be there. Jesus has given, he has shed his own life to welcome you into the kingdom of God. And without price, without money, without payment, you are invited. Come. And look at this. They make excuses. They begin to make excuses. What a slap in the face, right? What a slap in the face. So you know what happens? What happened with, with the first two men is that their wealth came first. Look in verse 18 and 19. The one had to tend to his piece of land. Our farmers would know this. Window of harvest, window of planting, everything else, nothing else matters. It's just that window. I had to tend to my land. The other one had some oxen. He had five oxen. That was quite a lot in those days. And he had to tend to his oxen. His wealth came before this invitation. He looked at the invitation that Christ has paid with his own blood, and he has invited me to come into the kingdom of God. And as anyone else has a right to be there, so do I, because Jesus' blood and Jesus' life and the price that he paid at Calvary would merit me to be there. And he looks at that, and then he looks at his mud. He looks at his wealth, and he says, that is more important. So he says to the servant, I'm fine, thanks. You can go and invite someone else. I'm okay. Look in verse 20. What happened here? Well, his family came first. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He heard the invitation. He heard that there was a feast in heaven and that he could be part of this feast. And he looked at his family, he looked at his wife, and he looked at his offspring, and his children, and his grandchildren. And he thought, oh, these are my treasure. I have no room, I have no time to go to that party. I must tend to this one. And notice, 
Notice that he could not attend both of them. He must leave one to have the other. His family came first. And so he said, I'm fine, thanks. A slap in the face to the master. The, master, the servant goes back. Look with me in verse 21. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed, and the halt and the blind. Go out and invite the useless. Go out and invite the sinners. Go out and invite the outcasts. Go out and invite those who would never be invited. And so the invitation comes to the sinner. The invitation comes to the beggar on the street. And he says, I've got nothing else to do. This is absolutely fantastic. How on earth could such an invitation come to me? How is it possible? I dare not tear up this precious invitation letter. And he takes that letter and he puts it in his pocket. And he says, sure as anything, I will go and I will be there. And it comes to the sinner, him who thought there was no way he would ever enter heaven. There was no feast for him that he would be condemned to hell. And there was no hope for him. And he hears that there is a Savior and that he can have Jesus as anyone else can have him. And he comes skipping and dancing and he says, Sir, I will be there, absolutely. And look what happens in verse 22. The servant said, Lord, it is done. And as you has commanded, as you has commanded, and yet there is room. There's still room. Do you know, friends, there's still room as long as it is today. There's still room for you. There's a place for you. There's an invitation for you. And verse 23, look, look how it ends. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Literally force them to come in. Tell them of the invitation. Tell them to what they're invited to. Tell them that there is a heaven to be had. Tell them that there is a God to live with for all eternity. Tell them of the glories of unseen things above. Paint the picture. Tell them the story. Invite them. Compel them to come in. Force them to come in, literally. In other words, you cannot turn this down. It's too precious. You must come. You must be there at this great party. And you can be there. You're as warranted to be there as anyone else in the world because the price has been paid. Compel them to come in. Application. We close in the last three minutes. What does this all mean? How does this first century parable fit so well into Omaha in the year of 2023? It's this, friends. Jesus is sending his messengers into the world. They have a message. The message is to come to Christ for life. There is life to be had in Jesus. There is a righteousness which you don't have, which you need, which you can have freely if you would come to him. There is a great exchange that can take place. All of your sins that you have accumulated, all of your debts that are outstanding before God can be paid on your behalf. 
and you can be reconciled to God this moment if you would believe in Jesus. If you would come to Jesus. If you would come in your mind with me to the middle man on Calvary's hill and you would place in simple confidence your faith in Him and trust Him. You, friend, will have eternal life. So the question I ask is, have you accepted this invitation? I've been sitting in the church many years. I don't ask you if you're a Baptist or if you know this doctrine or that doctrine. Have you accepted this invitation to come to that man, Jesus, who can give you everything that you need and can dress you and can pay the price for you to be at this great party? Or are you making excuses? Are you making excuses? Are you unable to see how great this invitation really is? Because the world and wealth and money has clouded your ability to realize just what you've been invited to. And you're unable to see through the bushes of money and materialism and life. You're unable to peek through into the windows of eternity and gaze upon what you were invited to. You were invited. Have you accepted the invitation? And if you've accepted the invitation, then the question for you, dear friend, is this. Are you inviting others? If you're not inviting others, one has to wonder whether you yourself accepted the invitation in the first place. Who would be quiet about such a feast? Who would be quiet about such a wedding, such a banquet, such a party to take place? Like, I'll accept and I won't tell anyone else. No, 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 no. If you've accepted the invitation, you're a servant, and it's your business to go out and tell people, come, everything is ready, and you're invited. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we have been so clouded by the mire of this world, we at times have forgotten just what you have invited us to and just the glory of things that await those who accept this invitation. Lord Jesus, for some here that have forgotten, they have been invited. They have been tending their lands or dealing with their oxen that you would help them to see what a great invitation has been put on the table for them and the great loss of declining this invitation. And for those that have placed family above you, that they too would see that this invitation is an invitation into the family of God. Lord Jesus, for us who have grown cold, can hardly see any more, we pray that you would come and energize us with your Holy Spirit and help us to see the great treasures of the gospel and the great invitation that comes to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.